Welcome back to our journey through the book of Ruth. Today we're going to look at chapter 2, and the story so far has been about a Jewish woman named Naomi, who's the only survivor of her biological immediate family. Uh, the family had left Israel, left their hometown of Bethlehem, and they decided to live in Moab for a while, and 10 years pass. Whether or not they intended to stay that long, we don't know. Her husband was Elimelech, that was his name, Elimelech, which means my God is king. Um, And Elimelech, he ends up dying during that 10 years. And their two sons, Malon and Kilion, uh, they also died. But they had married Moabite women before they died, unbelieving women, and uh, and then they they passed away. And so it was just Naomi left with her two daughters-in-law. Which makes me wonder, are they still daughters-in-law after the death of her sons? Are you still related after that? I, I thought you weren't, but uh, at least for, for, uh, to communicate clearly, you know, it still calls, her, uh, calls them her uh, daughters-in-law. But uh, Naomi believes that God has turned against her, uh, and she says, don't even call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter or unpleasant. Because that's the way that God sees me. He thinks that I'm unpleasant. That's kind of the, the impression that's going on. Since there was nothing for her in, in Moab anymore, in the foreign land, uh, Naomi decides to go home. And she urges her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, she urges them to go back to their biological moms and to, to remarry and to go find a future. And uh, she heard that, uh, that God had visited Israel that God had brought food to Israel during this time of famine. And so she, uh, she thinks, well, if that's where, where God is, then I want to go there. If God is over there, I want to be where he is. And so she, she decides she wants to head back to Bethlehem uh, in Israel. And, uh, uh, and that, uh, that's kind of something to key in on, okay? The fact that she was convinced by, by the understanding that God had visited his people, she wanted to be where God was because, you know, being out in Moab, she's wondering, does God hate me? Did God abandon me? Is God mad at me? And then she's like, I, I want to go back. I need to go back. That's where he is, and I got to go back. Well, she tells her daughters-in-law to, to go find a life, you know, a, a future. Uh, she can't promise them anything. She can't give them more husbands or anything like that. So at first, they both refuse. Uh, but Naomi insists, like, go and go back to your moms, your real moms, and, uh, and, and remarry and all that stuff. And so Orpah weeps and, and kisses Naomi goodbye, but Ruth clings to her. And Ruth declares, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. And then she says, your people, my people. Your God, my God. And at that point, there's this turn in her life, a, a, a turning away from, uh, from the God of the Moabites, Chemosh, and the turning toward the God of Israel, Yahweh. And she turns to, to, uh, to Yahweh, God is her Lord, and follows her Jewish mother-in-law back to her hometown of Bethlehem. Uh, she has abandoned her Moabite country. She's abandoned her Moabite allegiance. She's abandoned her Moabite identity. She's abandoned her Moabite God. Uh, they go to Bethlehem, and when they arrive, it's the beginning of barley harvest, which, by the way, is during the month of April. Barley is harvested throughout the month of April. So Naomi and Ruth have no income. They have no jobs, no immediate relatives to support them. Ruth is a foreigner, and she's, she's in a, a different country, in a town she's never been in. It's a Limelech's town. It's not even Naomi's town. It's, uh, uh, it's a completely different setting for her. So they really only have one option, which is to be beggars, to be poverty class beggars. That's, that's what they have to do. And uh, to be part of the poverty class, um, when I say beggar, it doesn't mean that they had to just sit there and ask for charity all the time, but it means that they didn't have income and they didn't have jobs. And so they had to go find, find ways to hopefully get lucky and, uh, and gather food and provisions. So there were provisions built into the government by God for the rich to provide for the poor. And uh, I want to show it to you in Leviticus 23, verse 22. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. This is what it says. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters. I am Yahweh, your God. Look at Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. 
It says, when you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Now, uh, when landowners uh, harvested their crops, that means that they can't, they can't harvest all the way up to the edges. They have to leave the edges of their field for the poor. So if you have a bigger field, you have a larger perimeter to your field, uh, to your fields, plural, if you had multiple. And so you'd leave the edges for the poor to go and reap. Uh, And when they harvest, you can only harvest once through your field. You can't go over it a second time to pick up anything you missed. Um, You leave that for the needy. If you drop anything or forget anything, you don't go back and pick it up. You leave it on the ground. All of these were left so that the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow would be provided for. And it's, it's stated again even in Leviticus 19 verses 9 to 10, which it's, it's a repeat, so I didn't put it in here. But the, uh, the, the poor that would come in would pick up these leftovers, pick up these unpicked portions, and that was called gleaning. To glean was to pick up the leftovers that the reapers didn't pick up. All of that was left for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. So uh, landowners didn't always follow this law either because, well, maybe they didn't care about God's law. Maybe that. Or maybe it was like a time during famine. And so they're like, we need all the food we can get. And so they would, you know, so sometimes uh, landowners wouldn't follow these laws. And this was also during the time of the judges when everyone was kind of doing whatever they wanted. Not many people were following the, uh, the law of God. So... Uh, so it's, it's hard to tell whether or not this was normally practiced at this time. But whatever the case, they, they didn't always follow the laws. They didn't always leave provisions for the, for, the, for the, the fatherless and the, uh, the sojourner and the widow. But God commands it. And he, he bolsters it for two, uh, in two ways. First, he says, like, I'm going to bless you if you do this, right? This will be for your blessing. He says, uh, uh, all of this is so that you, you can receive blessing. And he also says, I command you to do this. And he puts his name in it, right? That Yahweh, your God, may bless you in all the work of your hands. Right? You want your, your work to be blessed? It'll be blessed if you use it the way that I want to use it, which is to provide for those in need. Right? For all the great wealth that you amass, use it for those who need it. Then I'll bless you. And he ends that in verse 22. Therefore, I command you to do this. Well, God commands it. He says, I am Yahweh, your God. He seals his name upon that command. Uh, and, uh, and it shows you that this is who he is. He is a compassionate provider. And if that's who he is, then isn't that who we should be? Isn't that how God's people should be? He doesn't think, uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't ever say like, if you're a landowner and poor people are coming in to, to uh, take crops from your land don't let them they're going to use it to uh you know for their own uh, selfish gain they're going to use it to to either sell it and try to get alcohol he he doesn't say anything like that he's little they're in need provide for them if they misuse it that's on them not on you well ruth and naomi have no way of providing for themselves other than to glean they're both widows and if god has in mind the sojourner the foreigner and the widow then these are widows they fit this description and so these gleaning laws are, are especially helpful for them. And so this is what's going to set the stage for our story, or at least the portion of the story we get to look at today, which is chapter 2. If you're taking notes, we're going to go in three movements. And I was having fun with the headings because I had extra time this week. So the headings go zero expectations, first impressions, second chances. And then an alternate title for the sermon was going to be three months of harvest. But... I, did, I went a different direction with that. Zero expectations, first impressions, second chances. Right? Let's start with zero expectations in chapter 2, verses one, uh, 1 through 3 for now. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So Ruth goes to glean, right? And we have no idea, by the way, why Naomi doesn't go. They, they both can, but Naomi doesn't. Maybe, maybe Naomi was too old. Maybe she was injured. I don't know. Um, maybe she went to the relatives of Elimelech, her, her, uh, her deceased husband. Maybe she went to their houses to find something to do to help them or something like that. I don't know. But uh, maybe it was too far because the barley fields weren't inside the town of Bethlehem. They were outside. They were out on the outskirts and stuff because that's where the fields are. And then the city is like where all the buildings are and stuff. That's, that's normal, the way that things are laid out in, in civilization. Um, and so in any case, Naomi doesn't go to glean, right? Ruth goes by herself, um, and so if you, if you watch notice, uh, if you watch and take notice of, of how Ruth goes about this, she asks Naomi permission, right? She says, uh, let me go to the field and, and start to glean. And she asks permission because this was potentially a very dangerous thing for her to do, right? Ruth is a foreigner. She's poor. She has no family, no protection, no friends. She's all by herself. If she went missing or if something happened to her, no one would stand up for her. No one would look for her. No one would avenge her. A young, unprotected woman alone in the field with the young men, that, that potentially can be danger. No one will care. No one will come to her aid. Even though we know she's a Moabite, the author reminds us that she is Ruth the Moabite. Right? It says that right in verse 2, Ruth the Moabite. It's not like we've been introduced to her right now for the first time. We've known this. We've, we've journeyed for a full chapter about this Moabite woman, uh, and we know who she is. You know, we know what she is. She's a Moabite. And yet the, the author keeps bringing that back into our attention to highlight how out of place she is. She's not, she's not Ruth the Israelite. She's not Ruth the Ephrathite. She's Ruth the Moabite. The Hebrew word is feminine. So it, it, it clearly indicates she's Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabite woman. Ruth the Moabitess. Which, uh, which shows you even more uh, of a disadvantage that she has. Five out of the twelve times in this book that Ruth's name is mentioned, uh, it says Ruth the Moabitess. Now, Ruth is trying to be optimistic here. She says, let me glean for someone who will not mistreat me, who will not harm me, will not, not hate me. You know, I'll, someone who, who uh, I'll find favor in his sight, right? He won't, he won't look at me with harm, but he'll look at me with favor. Like, he'll, he'll look positively at me and, and think, okay, she's, she's okay, let her do her thing. You know, so uh, give me permission to go glean in the field for someone who's going to be okay with me. She seems to have enough common sense to know how the poor and the foreigners are treated by hostile landowners. So she asks permission, and it seems like uh, Naomi is totally okay with it. Or maybe she's concerned. I'm guessing she's concerned. But she does say, go, my daughter. Right? And just the, the, the care in calling this Moabitess her daughter. Right? Now, verse 1 is a little bit of a spoiler. Ancient writers didn't care about spoilers. They had to get to the point, right? They didn't develop the story in this, this very suspenseful manner to build your anticipation. So it just, it just kind of tells you right up front, Naomi had a relative of a husband. He was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, uh, whose name was Boaz. Just kind of throws that out there because that's going to be the character that's introduced in, uh, in this chapter. Uh, there's this relative of Elimelech, Named Boaz, he's a worthy man, which means he's a man of high standing socially and or he's a man who's very wealthy. And very oftentimes the two went together. High social standing and wealthy. And clearly he owns a field nearby or at least um, some land in the field. He's a landowner and so he has wealth. Uh, and it seems to be that he's, he's held in high regard. Boaz is from the same clan as Elimelech, which means he's not a close relative, 
but he's from the same group from which families would marry. Aha. Uh-huh. There's a hint on what's, uh, what's coming up, right? The, the author's trying to tell you he's from the same clan. He's from the same marriage pool. But Ruth and Naomi didn't know that. They weren't thinking about that. That's why verse 3 uh, says that Ruth happened to come upon the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Coincidence in terms of Ruth's part. Sovereign provision from the Lord's perspective. And then completely predictable from the reader's end. Later in the chapter, you'll see that Naomi didn't know where Ruth went to glean. She just went out. So they didn't know they were going to, to Boaz's field. They didn't know. Uh, Naomi didn't know. Ruth didn't know. They just went out. Ruth is like, let me go out and find favor with someone, you know, and, uh, and let me go glean there. And Naomi says, okay, go it, do it. So it's written as if Ruth literally happened to happen upon. That's the way that the Hebrew says it. She happened to happen upon the field of Boaz, as if it's coincidence. But the book keeps making this uh, a clear and recurring obvious stress on the sovereign control and provision of God. And, uh, and so you can see that the hand of God is operative, even though the, the author doesn't spell it out so obviously. Ruth doesn't sit around waiting for something to happen. She, she got her, uh, she's got her mother-in-law to take care of, and so she decides, I've got to do something. So instead of sitting around going, what now? She takes action. She says, Mom, let me go into the field, look for food. Uh, if I find a nice landowner, I'll st- stick with that place, and I'll glean there. And with no expectations, she has no idea what's going to happen. She's no expectations, but she's got a whole lot riding on just hope and faith. She sets out to provide for Naomi and for herself. That's the beginning point. And then she happens to happen upon the field of Boaz. Now let's look at their first impressions because these two are going to meet. Verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. Yahweh be with you. And they answered, Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, he said, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, Oh, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Let's stop there for a second. This is Boaz, okay? This is Boaz. He comes out from town, comes out from Bethlehem into his field. He greets his workers. His workers answer him back. And then he immediately notices Ruth and he asks about her. And the author keeps everything very to the point. And we get, uh, we get just from verse 4 a bit of an impression of him, don't we? Look at how he greets his workers. Boaz comes into his field and the first thing he says to his workers is, Yahweh be with you. And that's, uh, that's something that the author is bringing our attention to on purpose. Because first, why is a landowner paying any attention to his workers? They're, they're workers, they're servants, they're slaves. And yet he comes in and he says, Yahweh be with you. And he pronounces a blessing upon them. It gives immediate insight into this man's character. He's a man of faith. This is how he greets his people. Even today, bosses walking in with all, the, you know, all their workers. And so how many walk in and just get everyone's attention to say, Yahweh be with you. God bless you. It's not a, a greeting you hear at all today. How many times have you said, Yahweh be with you? You know what you've said more often than Yahweh be with you? May the force be with you. <laughs> you've said that more times than you've said, Yahweh be with you. Shame on you. We've said, uh, the force be with you. We say stuff like that because that's more normal in our culture. It's so weird to, to say, Yahweh be with you. Uh, even in the Bible, this phrase is used six other times. You know, Yahweh be with you. But they're, they're like blessings and prayers. But, uh, and they're more for like when you're saying goodbye. Like, I got to go now. Yahweh be with you. Or you're going to do something brave. Yahweh be with you. You know, there were times that it was, it was a, a, a blessing, a, a, a prayer of blessing as like a, a goodbye, but only Boaz uses it as a greeting. And it seems to be his regular greeting, given that no one is surprised by it. In fact, the workers have this very practiced response. He says, Yahweh be with you. And they say, Yahweh bless you. 
And look at that relationship between worker and, and employee, right? The master and slave. You see that very healthy chemistry between them where he just says Yahweh with you. They say, they say Yahweh bless you. And there's a, a mutual relationship of positive regard. These workers knew that Boaz worshipped Yahweh God, the God of Israel. And either they also worshipped the God of Israel or they at least appreciated him and encouraged him in his worship of Yahweh and then very suddenly, when he, he walks in, he goes, Yahweh be with you. They say, Yahweh bless you. And then all of a sudden, the author jumps to Boaz going, whoa, who's that? Right? It's the first thing he says after the greeting. Uh, he, he jumps to asking about this young woman that he doesn't recognize in his field. But here's the thing. It was not uncommon for landowners to have sojourners, fatherless, widows, and other poor people coming into their fields to glean. It was very normal to have people that you don't recognize in your fields. You didn't always have the same people every day, right? You're rich, they're poor, there are plenty of poor people, and sometimes it's even hard to recognize them depending on, uh, on whether or not they, they look the same every day. They, they're poor, they come to you. It's most likely that there were multiple people in the field that Boaz didn't recognize, especially if there's a famine in the land and only recently did God visit Israel and a bunch of people coming in to glean but he asks about one. He goes, who's that? And notice his question. Whose young woman is this? He doesn't ask for her name. He asks if she's single. Right? Whoa! Who's her husband? Or boyfriend? Or father? Or master, whose young woman is this? To whom does she belong? He asks if she's single. And we have a little bit of evidence then, just a little bit, to infer that he likes her. Right? There's a, there's a little bit of like, uh, bad boy, right? He's, he sees her. There's all these workers there. Whoa, who's that? To whom does she belong? That's his question. Maybe he thinks she's pretty. Maybe he just likes the way she gleans. I don't know. He doesn't have a whole lot to go on, right? But he got a, a first look and he had to ask. Seems to be implied as his first impression of her. The, the servant that he's talking to then uh, identifies her as, he, he goes, she's the Moabite woman, right? That's Ruth, the Moabite. She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And so the, the article there just being like, she's the one. She's, the, she's that Ruth character that, you know, the, the one that came back from Moab with Naomi and all that stuff. So it seems to be that that was a story that was already buzzing around town, which we saw at the end of chapter one. That was a story that was buzzing around town and Boaz just came from town. He heard this story and it seems to be something that he's talked about with his servants. And the servant is like, that's the one, that's the girl. Right? That's, that's the Ruth that, that we've been hearing about. So it indicates that Boaz knows about these two, about uh, Ruth and Naomi, since the city was talking about it. He never met them, apparently, so he didn't know what they looked like. He never met them, but the servant, uh, servant says, like, that's her. And then he points out, she politely asked to glean here. Now, she's fully allowed by law to glean. But she came and she asked. She came up to me and she asked, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she asked. Apparently she's an extremely hard worker too because she's been working all day with only one short rest. So not only is she polite, but she also is like, you know, she's, she's disciplined. She's, uh, she's a good worker. Now, how did Boaz feel about this, right? Was he, was he upset that she was a foreigner? Did he think that she still worshipped Chemosh? Right? Was he like, what, 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 is this, what is this Gentile, this non-Jewish person doing in my field? Did he do that? Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth. Listen, watch how he speaks to her. Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. 
Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. See, you can see very clearly here, Boaz likes her. Right? And we can't be 100% certain that it's a romantic attraction, but he certainly likes her with some positive regard. Right? He, he wants her to be safe. He wants her to be taken care of. He calls her my daughter, which is a term of affection, closeness, safety. Right? He doesn't want her to go anywhere else. He doesn't want her to risk getting hurt. He tells her to go with his servant girls following immediately after them. The servant girls are going to do their thing, you know, bundling up the sheaves and stuff. And then you go right after them to do your gleaning. Um, he says, you, you do that, right? You, she gets like a front row to, to the whole gleaning process. The men would go with the sickle and then the women would go and gather all, all the stuff and tie them into, into the sheaves, into the bundles. Uh, and Ruth would then be right there uh, behind them and she could pick up whatever they, they didn't pick up. Right? He apparently had ordered his servants not to touch her, which means don't strike her, don't molest her, don't harm her. And he gives her special privilege the servants would draw water from, uh, you know, and put it into jars and stuff, and she could drink from that. So servants would draw water for themselves. But now his servants also draw water for her. So in that sense, she gets treated in some ways better than the servants that worked for Boaz. She gets this very special treatment. We find out a few things about Boaz. I think uh, something we can notice is that even though Moabites were frequent enemies with Israel, he doesn't hold that against Ruth. Right? He doesn't judge her by her ethnicity because he seems to be aware of her and her story. He knows that she has come to worship Yahweh. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Right? He knows that she is no longer like the Moabite people. She's left that behind and she's come to take care of her Jewish mother-in-law. We also find out he's old. When he says, my daughter, uh, that means that he's probably 10, 15 years or more older than her. Otherwise, he would say, my sister. But he finds a generational gap between uh, himself and her, that he is old enough to, to uh, refer to her as my daughter. But Ruth has already been old enough to be married. So if we, if we kind of find out how old Ruth is, then we can try to estimate how old Boaz is. Um, Ruth has been old enough to be married, and her husband died, and she came here. So like, kind of put the events together, okay? Elimelech was married to Naomi. They had two sons, Malon and Kilion. Okay? Malon is the older of the sons, Kilion is the younger. Ruth was married to Malon, the older one. You find that out in chapter 4. Okay? And so uh, he gets married, and then a few years later, however long it takes for the younger one to get married. So then she's been married to Malon for some time, and then he passes away. And, then, and, and Kilion passes away. So, and 10 years pass in Moab. So how old is Ruth? I don't know, but... Some years have gone by, and then she's, she's uh, had enough time to build a very, very close relationship with Naomi. Then they come back to Bethlehem, and here they are, and Boaz is, what, 15 plus years older than her. So he's old. That's as much as we can say. He's old, right? She's not super young, and she's not super old either. She's young enough to remarry. But uh, she's, not, she's not super old. She's not super young. But Boaz is, is old. It seems to be that he's somewhere in his 40s or 50s. Which then makes me ask this question. 40s or 50s? Uh, in this society, marriage was of utmost importance in order to carry on your family name. Why is this 40 or 50-year-old man who's rich and of high standing, why is he not married? Was there something weird with him? You know, was he socially awkward? Was he, 
Uh, socially awkward it wasn't even a thing back then. Everyone, you know, was just, people were just people. There was no such thing as socially awkward. It's just, you know, there was no, there was no television, no internet. Nothing like set a norm for, you know, for how people, their social habits and things. They just, they just had culture and that was it. So why is he 40 or 50 and not married? Marriage and children were extremely emphasized, especially if you're rich. And so it kind of makes you wonder if something was wrong with him. You know, was he, uh, I don't know, did, was he missing like a, an arm? I don't know. It doesn't seem to indicate that. Did he have some kind of blemish or imperfection? Was his skin like scarred? Why wouldn't his parents arrange for him to marry someone? Or why wouldn't someone else's parents, why wouldn't a, a young woman's parents arrange to marry him? Because that's a lot of wealth if he's a landowner with fields and servants. Well, we don't know, and the author doesn't tell us because the reason isn't important. Instead, we just keep being brought back to his character. The fact that he didn't become arrogant, conceited, prideful, haughty, and you know, all that kind of stuff kind of says maybe there was something that just kept him humble. Who's to know? Verse 10. Then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Yahweh repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, Ruth had every reason to feel unlikable to Boaz, right? Boaz had plenty of reasons not to like her. Uh, she was a foreigner, a Gentile, right? Uh, she, was a, uh, she was not a Jew. So Israel was extremely ethnocentric, uh, not just because of religion, but because they were an oppressed people and they just grew up you know, as a, a culture and a, as a nation, um, hating the other countries. Uh, she was an outsider to the covenant people of God, right? Moabites can't come to the assembly of Yahweh. You remember that from last week? She was, uh, she was from Moab, which is a long-standing enemy of Israel. So it's not just any country. It happens to be Moab, the country that we fought against all the time. She was a woman in a male-dominated society. She had no parents in Israel, no husband, no children to provide for her. She lived with another widow, right? Her older mother-in-law and no male family member was providing for them. She had no standing in society, no job, no notoriety, no, nothing to cling to for respect. Her question, in fact, the way that she asks her question, you know, she goes, uh, why, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Her question, uh, it, it, like in the English translation, you lose something because in Hebrew, it's like this weird play on words that uses cognates and consonants. She basically kind of asks something like, why do you take notice of me when I am not worth noticing? Why do you take notice of me when I am not noticeworthy? But because Boaz showed such undeserved kindness, Ruth bows to the ground, a sign of gratitude and humility in that, in that time. Uh, and you notice the amazement in her voice. Why have I found favor in your eyes? Why, why do you notice me? Why did, you, why did you look at me? And Boaz's answer is that I've heard of you. I know your story. I know everything you did. And he admired her faith. He admired her love. He admired her loyalty. He admired her kindness. He liked her for her personality too. So while at first it seems like he liked her just because he saw her, she's pretty, you know, it seems like he's really fallen for something about her character and her faith. Boaz pronounces a blessing on Ruth for two reasons, right? He, uh, he said, you know, Yahweh repay you for what you've done. And then he, he says, a full reward be given you by Yahweh. That's the same thing, right? But he says that for, uh, um, for two reasons. The first one being, for all you've done for your mother-in-law. 
right? May God repay for all you've done for your mother-in-law. And then he says, uh, a full reward be given you because you left Moab to come worship Yahweh, God of Israel, to take refuge in him. Right? He, he, he blesses her for her love for her neighbor, specifically her mother-in-law, and her love for God. Now, I want to um, point out verse 12 again. Just uh, pay attention to it. Let's read it one more time uh, and log it in your brain for a second. Okay? Yahweh repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Okay, like get that, put the blessing in, in, in your mind and, and don't forget that. Hang on to that for later. We'll talk about it in a few minutes and then we're going to circle back to that in a future week. But for now, at least notice that Boaz commends her and blesses her for caring for Naomi and trusting Yahweh, the God of Israel. Verse 13. Then Ruth said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Right? She responds with that gratitude, that humility again. She, she knows she doesn't deserve the special treatment, but she's being given special treatment. And she's, uh, she's grateful for it. This is definitely her first impression of him. You know, his first impression of her, her first impression of him. Everything seems to, you know, be a... It's, it's good. It's lovely. It's good. It's beautiful. And yet the first day isn't over. So here's how the rest of the, the day pans out. Verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, meaning she doesn't have to be behind. She can be right there with everybody else. And do not reproach her. And also... Pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Do you see the repeated special treatment going on? Boaz is really making sure Ruth is taken care of. He, he shows increasing interest, right? He seems to have dialed it up a bit. Uh, she gets to eat with the workers as if she belonged to Boaz, as if she's one of his hired servants, um, rather than being a foreigner picking up leftovers in his field. He's like, no, 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 no. Bring her in as one of us. And that's weird since she's a Gentile. She's not Jewish. And Jews don't eat with Gentiles. Especially when you get to the New Testament time, they were very strict about not eating with Gentiles. But in the Old Testament time, during the time of the judges, ah, who knows? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But maybe Boaz was, uh, was okay with eating with her because, yes, she's a foreigner, but she worships Yahweh. And the reason why they shouldn't have relationships with foreigners was because they were unbelievers. You know, you, you ought not to, to intermarry or, or intertwine yourself with unbelievers. But because she worships Yahweh, God came to Yahweh for refuge. He says, oh, she's one of us then. Note, by the way, that Ruth ate until she was satisfied, and then she had some left over, right? Boaz fed this girl a lot, right? She gave this girl a lot of food. You give a girl food, that's the ultimate act of love. Are you, she, he gave her a bunch of food and then a bunch of leftovers. And he's like, hey, let me give you a, a, like a, a take-home bag. Let me give you a box. Throws it all together in some Tupperware, right? He's like, here. And he hands it to her. She's got like this little, this little you know, doggy bag to, to take home because uh, he's given her so much. He, um, he doesn't just invite her to, to, to sit and, and eat. But he, notice he, he has her sit among the, the other servants as if she belongs to, to this group. And then he serves her himself, right? He gives her the roasted grain instead of having a servant do it, right? The servant normally gives the food and stuff, but then he gets up and he, he gets it and he hands it to her and things. And why would he do that? Why would this, this rich landowner who has a certain amount of dignity that he ought to maintain and protect, or he get up and he'd start acting like a, a servant guy? He's doing this and he gives it to her and stuff. Why is he that? Well, it's because guys get stupid like that when we like a girl. That's what happens. You know, that's just a normal, natural thing. 
When I was in elementary school, there was this girl that I liked, and she was going to uh, sharpen her pencil. And I'm like, I can do it. And I grabbed her pencil, and I ran over it, and I just sharpened it for her. And I was like, I'm going to get this thing so sharp, so sharp. And I just, you know, for like a good two and a half minutes, I just like shaved this thing down. I hand back to her this little stub, but it was, that thing was sharp. Why did I do that? I don't know. What, like, I, I looked like a fool in front of everybody, but did I care? I don't know. didn't matter. Well, she, she sits down to eat, and so he grabs a roasted grain. He's like, I got this, I got this. And, and then when she's done eating, he's like, hey, take this, take this. And he puts it all together and hands it to her. Did she fall for that? Did she fall in love with him for that? No. I don't know. Maybe she's like, this is really nice. He's really nice. We don't know what her, her reaction to that necessarily is. And for you and me, I don't think we care about who serves the roasted grain. You know, that's not a big deal for us today. It doesn't matter. But a rich man in that day had to act like a rich man. His servants did the serving. It would be embarrassing. It would be shameful to act like a servant. It forfeits your honor, your dignity. It undermines your authority. It makes you seem weak in that culture. Boaz was either really infatuated with her or he's just that humble. He's humble enough to act like a servant just because he's a man of God. Or maybe it's both. He orders his servants to let her glean among the sheaves, right, to, uh, to take stuff that they're still collecting. They haven't even finished bundling it together. And then he's like, even the stuff that you've bundled, pull some out and give it to her, right? Make sure she, like, just, just keep giving her stuff. Don't stop giving her. Every few seconds, she should be like, oh, I get this too? Right, just nonstop, she just, she just keeps receiving and then he's like, don't rebuke her, don't insult her, don't scold her, don't embarrass her, don't reproach her. That's what he says. Like, so already he's told his, his young men, don't, don't touch her, don't strike her, don't molest her, don't harm her. That's the physical thing, right? But then he says, don't even say something wrong to her, right? He, you ever, you ever get, men, do you ever get like that? Like if anyone ever says something to you, you let me know. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about, right? When you get that way, it's because you like this girl, Hey, if anyone says something, you let me know. I'll, I'll show them what's up. You know, and you, you, you get all like, you pretend you're all big because it's just insecurity screaming, but you pretend it's strength. The whole thing is dripping with this, this, this romance, special treatment. It's all this love. And Boaz's instructions were generous far beyond the requirements of the law, far beyond uh, landowners only had to let the gleaners pick up leftovers that were accidentally dropped, but Ruth got this portion that they kept throwing at her and bundling for her and giving her more and all this stuff. And I, uh, going back to that verse 12 thing that I said for you to put in your head, Yahweh repay you for what you have done, right? Uh, Boaz says, I hope God repays you. May God repay you for all that you've done. And then what does Boaz do? He starts repaying her for what she's done right? May God do this for you. And so he does it for her. And that is, uh, that is a clear and powerful demonstration of how we ought to live as God's people. What you pray for is what you perform. If you pray that God helps someone, then you need to go help that person if you're able, right? If, if the person's in a different country and, and you know, you're just hoping that they get healthy or something, you can pray for them and you, maybe you can't do anything about it. But if they're within your vicinity, within your sphere of influence, and you, you pray, God, help this person, go help them, be the vehicle by which God moves and blesses, right? Don't throw it at the Lord and say, be with that person. How many times do we pray, God, be with this person, be with this person? We just kind of pray that and then it, 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 it's vapid. It just kind of disappears after that. Be with this person. Then you go on with your life, ignoring that person. Be with this person. He or she is lonely. But then do you call this person up and say, hey, let's go, let's go talk. Let's have lunch. Let's, let's hang out. Right? That kind of prayer, when you're just like, God, be with that person, then you, you don't do anything about it. You're just offloading work to God because you don't care enough to do it. There's no conviction behind that. Be the answer to your prayer. It doesn't mean that you are God. It means that you make yourself available for God to work through you. When you pray, God, do this, 
It has to come from a heart that says, God, do this through me. Boaz's his first line of dialogue in this book in verse 4 where he greets people with Yahweh be with you. Look how he lives out his faith. People get to experience the presence of Yahweh because of the way he lives. It's through his actions that Ruth can say God was with me. Well, Boaz and Ruth say goodbye for the day and Ruth goes home. Their first impressions have been made. Then you get to verses 17 and on, which we've titled Second Chances. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her Uh, what food she had left over after being satisfied. So after all her work, Ruth ended up with an ephah of barley, right? An ephah. How many of you have an ephah of barley? That is somewhere in the vicinity of 40 pounds that she comes home with. That's way more than what what you get by picking up the leftovers in the field. Right? Uh, Normally... When you, when you glean in the field, you might get enough for the day. Maybe a couple days if you're lucky. But all that special treatment made a huge difference. She worked one day and came home with enough grain to feed Ruth and Naomi to adult, uh, two adult-sized appetites. And if they were to only eat grain, they could eat that for two weeks. That's what she got on day one. If it were just for herself, she would eat for a month. Naomi sees what Ruth gleaned, and then she's like, what in the world happened here? And Ruth, you know, she comes home with 40 pounds of grain, and this is, it's all beaten out and everything. It's, it's, it's just the edible parts. It's like coming home with 40 pounds of sunflower seeds without the shells. You know what I mean? He just, she comes home with all this stuff and, uh, and Naomi's like, what? You gotta be kidding me. And, and Ruth is like, hold on. I also have this little take-home bag here from lunch with some roasted grain too. And she has this, this little box of leftovers. She pulls out her little Tupperware. Naomi sees the whole thing. Watch her reaction, verse 19. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked, uh, with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Now, Ruth doesn't know who Boaz is. She just knows it's the name Boaz. This is a guy named Boaz, okay? Now, Naomi's reaction is awesome, right? Where did you go? Where did you work? God bless whoever gave this to you, right? She's blown away. She probably spent all day worrying about Ruth, wouldn't you think, right? I'm sending my, my uh, daughter-in-law out into the fields where the young men are. She has no protection. No one knows her. No, one, no one's going to miss her. No one's going to go looking for her or anything like that. And if I try to make, a, make noise about her disappearance or if she gets harmed and I try to say something, I'm a widow too and I don't have any relatives here. I got nothing. So she's worrying all day and she's like, is everyone just going to hate her because she's a Moabite? Will the other gleaners mistreat her because she's not a Jew? You know, if there were poor Jewish people in the field and then this poor Moabite woman in the field, would they be like, get out of here? You know, Gentile scum, get out of here. And then, of course, there's like the, is there even enough to glean? Right? There's famine in the land out there. Sure, we have food here, but everyone's coming here to, to glean then. So is she going to have enough? And so all day, there she is, just kind of sweating and biting her nails and being like, what's going to happen? I I hope Ruth is okay. And then Ruth comes in with 40 pounds of grain, throws it down, pulls out her Tupperware. She's heaving this huge load, you know, and then she's like, yeah, today was awesome. Naomi sees all of it. No wonder she's just like, where did you go? What did you do? Blessed be whoever gave this to you. Technically, if you're being technical, saying blessed be 
the one who gave that to you, the blessed be that guy, that's a prayer. When you say, may, may he be blessed by God, that's a, a prayer. When you say, may God be with you, that's a prayer. When you say, may the force be with you, that's also a prayer. Anyway, when you say, blessed be that guy, that's a, that's a prayer. Now, just a fun fact. Every prayer in this book is a prayer of blessing, and every prayer in this book is answered. Ask yourself what you think Naomi is thinking now, right? Because this is a very different uh, a very different moment than at the end of chapter one. At the end of chapter one, everyone's like, is this Naomi? And she goes, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The drama, right? Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Right? That's, that's what she says at the end of chapter one. Here she goes, what in the world? How do you have so much? May God bless whoever's doing this. Do you think that Naomi still thinks God finds her bitter and unpleasant? Do you think that she still maintains that God must be mad at me, hates me, abandoned me? Now, to be clear, success doesn't mean God loves you, and then struggle doesn't mean God hates you. Naomi experienced both, and all through it, the Lord was sovereignly caring for her through the good and the bad. She was wrong for thinking that because life was hard, God was against her. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Well, why does she say that? See, um, what happened was she goes, bless whoever gave this to you. And then Ruth goes, oh, his name is Boaz. And then she goes, Boaz. May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose, uh, Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, why, why, why does she say this, right? This, she's pronouncing the, the blessing a second time, and this time she's acknowledging that God was showing kindness, loving kindness, hesed, which means the, the kind of loving kindness, the steadfast love of God's covenantal relationship, right? It was the promise love. The oath-keeping love, the vow-keeping love, the unbreakable love, that's, what, that's the kind of love that she brings up. And she knows now that God didn't forget or abandon her. He, he didn't find her bitter or unpleasant. He's like, no, 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 She's, he's showing kindness, right? He didn't forsake me. He was blessing her with more than just food. This, she knew, was a second chance for what went wrong previously. Notice, Naomi said that God is showing kindness to the living and the dead. Well, who's the living? That would be, that would be Ruth and Naomi. They're living, and God is showing them kindness. God hasn't forsaken them. God is showing them kindness. He's showing kindness to the living, Ruth and Naomi. That's obvious. Who, then, does she mean when she says that Yahweh is showing kindness to the dead? Well, she means Elimelech, her husband, and Malon, her son, which was Ruth's husband. How is this kindness to them? How is this in some way a blessing for the deceased? The deceased who had no children, their family line ended. Elimelech and Malon and Kilion, they all died, no children. The family line is doomed. But Naomi said, May Yahweh be blessed whose kindness has not forsaken the dead. Why she say that? Because the rest of verse 20, Naomi also said to her, the man, Boaz, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. One of our redeemers. Now, the author had already kept cluing us in that uh, Boaz is part of the same clan as Elimelech, which means he's a close enough relative, right? All of Israel technically were relatives. They all were descendants of Israel. So a close relative was someone in your clan, 
That's what they would, they would say, close relative, even though, again, it was distant enough. It wasn't your immediate family. There was no, like, incest or genetic problems, you know, but someone in your clan that you could marry. But, and she says, this is a, a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, redemption means deliverance from, uh, from, evil, uh, from some evil by a payment of a price. To redeem something would, would mean to pay the price in order to then get rid of a, some kind of a negative uh, status. It's a type of salvation that comes by payment. Okay, so most commonly, uh, re- redemption is used to, to talk about liberating a slave. You purchase the slave to set him free. That would be redeeming the slave. When we say that Jesus is our redeemer, it means that we were slaves to sin. He paid the penalty. We are set free. That's what we mean by redeemer. So savior is like the big general term for someone who, who saves you, rescues you. And redeemer is a type of savior, a a savior who pays a price in order to save you, not just goes in and defeats the bad guy like a hero, but pays a price. A redeemer, or more accurately, you know, the word here, redeemer, you can, it's goel in in Hebrew. You can uh, translate a guardian redeemer or kinsman redeemer, but uh, it's a relative, uh, someone within your clan who had Five responsibilities, if we can put them up. Five responsibilities. The first is that you could avenge the death of a murdered relative, Numbers 35, verse 19. So uh, in that day, since they didn't have elaborate court systems, if someone killed your relative, then you could go and kill them back. That was an avenger of blood or a goel or a, a redeemer. Second, you could buy back family land that was sold off. You could buy it back in Leviticus 25, 25. Then uh, you could buy back a family member who was sold as a slave. That's Leviticus 25, verses 47 to 49. Then you, could, uh, you, you uh, were tasked with looking after the needy and helpless members of the family in Leviticus 25, verse 35. And then the most important one is that if you were a kinsman redeemer, if you were a guardian redeemer, you could marry the widow of one of your deceased relatives and then you would have children with that widow, and the, the first son would belong to the one that was deceased to continue that family line. The rest of the sons would be yours and continue your line. And they had lots of kids back then, but that first son would belong to the deceased relative to continue that line. You would redeem and you would save that family line, which was supposed to be doomed. So you could go marry uh, a widow of a close relative, someone who married one of your close relatives, you could, and then continue the family line. So the redeemer, Boaz, marries the widow Ruth. If that happens, then if they have kids, the first son would belong to Malon and would continue his family line. So Boaz has the power to save Elimelech and Malon's family line from disappearing. This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Verse 21, and Ruth the Moabite, again, we're reminded of her outsideness. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. (laughs) I don't know. Was Ruth even listening? Right? It, it almost seems like he's just like, yeah, 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 yeah. But he said I could stick around with his young men until I, I finished harvest. You know, yeah, yeah, he's one of our redeemers. Fine, fine, fine. But he said I could, it, it, it almost seems like she dismissed it, but I don't think that's it. It's not that. She, uh, she knows she's a Moabite. Um, and it could be she doesn't even know what a guardian redeemer is or a kinsman redeemer. She didn't read Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy during her time worshiping Chemosh, right? So she probably doesn't know those laws. But but it's more likely that what Ruth was saying is, uh, the, Ruth the Moabite, she's like, even me, an outsider, he told me that I could stay there and I could keep working and seeing him and talking with him and developing some kind of a relationship with him for some amount of time until all the harvest is done. He said I could stay for a long time. Right? Because here's Naomi, she's like, Boaz? That's, that's one of the people that can save our family line. And, and Ruth is like, well, I'm going back there tomorrow. 
and the next day, and the next day, right? So they're, they're kind of snowballing here, and, and they're like, oh, this is, this is incredible. What if something comes out of this, you know? She's like, I'm allowed to go back again and again until the harvest is done. Verse 22, And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So Ruth kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So not only did she get to stay until the end of the barley harvest, which is through the entire month of April, but she got to stay through the entire, uh, the entire season of wheat harvest, which is through the month of May and a little bit into June. That's two to three months. She got to be there every day, well, six days out of the week. She'd probably rest on the seventh. She gets to continue the work, work there, being blessed, getting to know Boaz, enjoying his favor. And then she kept coming back home to her mother-in-law because that's where she was faithful. She was taking care of her mother-in-law. She wasn't, she wasn't sleeping around. She wasn't you know, being promiscuous or anything like that. She, she was faithful to her mother-in-law, coming back, providing for her. Well, the story has to take a pause until next week. It won't surprise you to hear me say that every book of the Bible ultimately points to Jesus, and we're starting to zero in on those themes more prominently in chapters 3 and 4. But for now, simply walk away with Boaz's greeting ringing in your ears, Yahweh be with you. If that is the prayer of your heart when you see people, if it is the deep desire of your spirit for people to know Yahweh God, to know Jesus if it is the cry of your soul that Yahweh be with your people, be with the people that you know, if that's the prayer that goes on inside you, Yahweh be with whomever you know, then I think two things become evident. First is that Yahweh is already with you because only the work of His Holy Spirit in your soul can transform fleshly desires to heavenly ones. Right to, to take you and, and make the, the passion and conviction of your heart to connect people to God. That takes a work of heaven. That takes the power of God. And for you to be praying that means that Yahweh is already with you. Second is that Yahweh will be with you. He will continue to be with you. Because Jesus himself said that as you go making disciples connecting people to Yahweh. As you go doing that, He will be with you even to the end of the age. I think there's so much more that can be gleaned from this story, a greater harvest of blessing to be reaped in the coming chapters. There are reminders that trouble in life doesn't mean God is against you, that suffering doesn't mean that God finds you unpleasant, Rather, to the contrary, if you truly have trust in Him, perhaps He is preparing and inviting you into something that you don't yet understand, maybe in this life, but surely for the next. Even when you feel grief, despair, frustration, uncertainty, remember that your story is not yet at its last chapter. Yahweh be with you, for Yahweh is with you. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the developing story of loving kindness in the book of Ruth that keeps pointing us back to you, God in heaven, for God is love. God is kindness. And God, we hope that uh, what we see here as examples of faith would move us forward, inspire us and convict us and, and bring the Spirit to work in our hearts to transform us so that we too go out 
and bless people the way that these people are blessing. We admire the faithfulness of Ruth, her humility, her dedication. We admire the faith and, and piety of Boaz, his humility, his worship of you, his admiration of character. And we hope, Lord, that as we look at this and, and remember again and again that this is the Word of God, this is the inspired work of the Holy Spirit meant to teach us, even to rebuke us and correct us and to train us in righteousness, to thoroughly equip us for every good work. We hope, Lord, that as we look at these words, it would do exactly that and breed in us a loving kindness for you and for the people around us that when we come into someone's life, they can know that Yahweh is with them. May we live out your presence. Bless as you bless. Love as you love. That your name be glorified. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.